Hello, and welcome to the latest edition of the Digital CXO Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Bizard, and my guest today is once again, Alan Schimmel, CEO of TechStrong Group, publisher of DevOps.com, Security Boulevard, Container Journal, TechStrong TV, and of course, Digital CXO. Alan, welcome to the show. Hey, Mike. Great to be back. So there's this thing going on in Europe, seems to be a bit of a conflict that's disrupting the entire world. What's your take on this from a digital business perspective? How do I think about resiliency in a world where there is such volatility? Well, you know, Mike, I I, I was talking to someone today. I I found myself watching a lot of Star Trek (laughs) since, since this invasion of Ukraine by Russia. And I realized, I didn't realize it then, but I realize it now, that the the rose-colored glasses of humanity pulling in the same direction, and we're all one, was such a stark contrast to the Cold War attitudes and threatened nuclear bombs and all the other kind of stuff that we grew up with as kids. No wonder why we love Star Trek so much. I, I, I think we're seeing the same thing play itself out here. We, we've taken for granted that it's a very small world and we're all interconnected you know, intricately, whether it's China or Russia and the U.S. and Europe and Africa and the Middle East and the rest of the world and Asia. Um, I, I think the lesson we're going to learn out of this is that we're not as in, intrinsically connected as we thought and that if we have to, what's the word, untangle, decouple, a partner such as a Russia or maybe down the road a China, you know, if, if, if the politics and situation warrants it, it will be done and we'll have to learn to live with it. Um, does it have repercussions for cybersecurity? Yes. Does it have um, repercussions for our economy from everything from gas prices to VC monies to, you know, global software distribution? Yes. But it's the world we live in, and I think it'll make for some winners and for some losers. I think the uncoupling process is ugly, though, because you're hearing reports about people are lining up at ATMs in Russia to take out cash. The valuation of rubles is dropping. So, it's not just the Ukraine or the Europeans that are impacted. It's almost impossible to hide these events from your local population. And I think the backlash against that builds the longer the invasion goes on and maybe the pressure for some sort of negotiation um, starts to intensify because the local population is now feeling this pain beyond just the injuries to the soldiers, but they're seeing it in their food prices and in the, uh, the cost of electronics is up 30% in Russia. It's all kinds of interesting. Interest rates at 20%. <clears throat> well, you know, but that was not an unintended consequence. I think that was the very intended consequence of the sanctions that were imposed by Europe and the U.S. and the rest of the world. I mean, Mike, you've got Switzerland saying that they are not, they're going to freeze Russian assets. I don't think the Swiss froze the Nazi assets in World War II. Do you know what? This is, this is, this is big news. You've got Sweden that's been neutral for every war and conflict probably in 100 or more years. 
sending weapons to Ukraine. That, that should tell you when you've got companies like Switzerland, con- companies, countries like Switzerland and Sweden weighing in here like this. I, I think it says something to you. I think it's particularly in the case of Russia, there's two, there's two power sources that Putin has to be wary of. One is, as you mentioned, the common man of Russia, right, who's lining up to get their rubles out of ATMs and running on banks and making sure they have food to eat. This isn't this isn't the communist citizen of, of Stalin or Brezhnev, right, who, who would put up with that kind of stuff because, you know, they're going to win the war against the West. These are Russians who, for the last 30 years, have been very integrated into Europe, into the world's economy. And they're not used to doing without. They're, as, in many ways, as soft as we are, I guess. But then there's another more dangerous element to Putin, and that's the oligarchs. Because as much as this is hurting the common man, they frankly don't have as much to lose. When you start taking away $100 million yachts from oligarchs and you start closing down their Swiss bank accounts or Cayman Islands accounts or take away their condos in Miami Beach, they get really pissed and they have a lot more, they have a lot more to say and do when they're really that upset than does the common man. They don't have the numbers population-wise, but they certainly wield the power there. And I think that's ultimately what may force Putin to, you know, if he can't end this war successfully very shortly, he's going to have to end this war unsuccessfully, or, or as Richard Nixon would say, peace with honor, right? Real soon. Do you think we're in danger of seeing some escalation of the cybersecurity yes. espionage and warfare that goes on? I think we already are. And, and but I, But let's not be naive. It's not a one-way this is not a one-way Russia cybersecurity on the West or Ukraine. I think you are seeing hacktivist organizations trying to make you know weigh in here against Russia. Let's not pretend that the United States does not have offensive cyber assets in place and deployed. Uh, Ukraine themselves, I mean, they're not babies when it comes to cyber or, or computers, right? I mean, they, they have a huge uh, expertise, a population with deep knowledge of, of it. Um, I think, as a matter of fact, this may be a conflict where the cyber element, maybe not as deadly as physical, you know, we're not talking missiles and bombs, but it certainly is active as the combat element what are the implications from a digital business perspective and i wonder if some organizations are asking themselves am i too dependent now on these digital processes and should i have backup in terms of my old legacy processes in place just to make sure i can actually still do something you know i think that trains left the station unfortunately or fortunately digital is here to stay i don't think the choice is digital or not it is digital, right? Because not isn't an option, but it's digital. How can I make it safer, right? What's my resilience? It's resilient digital, right? We need 
you, you've got, I think, leaders, digital CXO audience has to be thinking about resiliency in their digital operations, not not backing off digital operations and trying to go back to, you know, leave it to beaver tarts. Mm-hmm. Well, to your point, and let's follow up on a conversation we were having last time we met, but there's an IDG survey put out there with uh, folks from uh, Inside Enterprise, which is a IT services provider, talking about how 97% of organizations are fairly well down the path towards digital transformation, at least among large enterprises. And I guess the question I have to you is, do you think that they are thinking through the resiliency side of that adventure? Or is this now something that they're thinking about as an afterthought and going, whoops, we need to kind of figure out a different plan here to make sure that these things are available no matter who cuts what internet service, when and where? Yeah, no, I, I, you know, I'll stick with my, my response. It's about resiliency. Right. I mean, um, it's not about my, you know, it's not about, well, if I can't get to Amazon, I'm SOL, right? I mean, last week we saw, I think it was Slack was down. It might have been related to an AWS thing. There were several other high profile applications that suffered outages last week. I didn't read anywhere that anyone blamed that, by the way, on, on the, Russian Ukrainian situation, but um, I don't. I don't think Slack suffered any customers leaving as a result of it. Though it, w- it was a bit of a pain in the butt, but you didn't see people canceling their Slack accounts. And I don't. Mine is some sort of you know deep, dark, multi-day ca- catastrophe. I don't think pickups are going to be enough to derail things. I think people are just going to plan for more, you know, resiliency, for more uh, options if, if something does go wrong. But those options are in a retreat mm-hmm. from digitalization. Yeah, I think you'll see people run more towards microservices for their applications because there's resiliency built into it. The calls will be rerouted. There may be latency issues, but the service won't go down. Well, I, you know what? That's a good, good question and a good. I mean, I mean, I think that's the common sense. But I, I'll take a counterintuitive approach to that: is that when you, you know, you go to a microservices architecture like that, there's more things that can go wrong too, right? And and which of those microservices are truly core critical? where the whole thing shuts down if that microservice doesn't work. Well, hopefully folks are smart enough about that to figure out how to go do that, because that's kind of the whole point of this cloud-native push. Yeah. Well, yes, it's more resilient, but it's also more distributed and and all of those things. I I think, look, we'll find out. Let's put it that way. I think we're going to see how that works out. I wanted to get your take on an article contributed to Digital CXO by the CEO of OutSystems. They make a low-code platform. And he was saying in this article that custom software will beat uh, off-the-shelf software every time. And I wonder, to what degree is that true in your mind? Are we seeing a shift 
towards where everybody is going to start rolling out some form of custom software to create that digital process that's just perfect? Or will we continue to see people rely on these big packaged application suites from SAP, Oracle, and whoever else it might be? They are platforms. <laughs> They're platforms. So, you know, I, I helped start uh, an ASP, application service provider, back in the dot-com days. This was early on, but there was no cloud and all of these things. But we did a lot of customer research. And what we found was that these big package platforms, apps, suites, whatever you want to call them, and we would do it, PeopleSoft and Oracle, a bunch of others back then, Notes, no one used them 100% out of the box. The best you could hope for was 80%. And then twenty percent customization. I think I think it's about the same today, right? No, none of these off-the-shelf commercial products are just plug and play. You always need about twenty percent customization. Number one, number two, you need. It's about the same ratio, ironically, in even in custom-made apps. The apps are about 80% pre, pre-coded components that are stitched and glued together, right? And, and, and many of those pre-done components are open source, by the way. So, you know, I, I think that's the reality then, and it's the reality now that, you know, there is nothing that fits you like a glove. You always have to customize and it's usually that 20, 15, 20% that needs to get customized. Even what we're calling custom software is fundamentally different to your point, because back in the day, you would have to write all that low-level code yourself. And now you are quite literally right. stitching together a bunch of existing modules somebody else hopefully vetted for you. And maybe it's just become a lot easier to build custom software. Absolutely. I mean, if... You know, it's what we call custom software, but it's a lot of times it is. It's Frankenstein software where we just we're stitching together someone else's modules. All right. It I works. Prefer, it's all good. I prefer to think of it as prefabricated rather than Frankenstein. Okay, yeah, Frankenstein's <laughs> probably a bad word. You're right. Um one other thing about this whole shift to digital business, because we have another article on digital CXO talking about testing and the customer experience. And I think part of the shift to digital business is that the application experience is less, shall we say, forgiving. The end user is, has an expectation because of their consumer experience. And I wonder if that's going to have an impact on testing as we go forward, which was always considered something of a nice to have, but maybe now is an absolute requirement because the person using the software isn't going to come back for a second time if the first experience is bad. Yep. So I, I think testing has been a, a, a victim of its own success. I think applications today, software today, work a lot, lot better than they did back when. There's a lot, lot less shelfware than there was then. I think, you know, I think a big part of the reason for this is that we're doing so much more testing before we release software now. Usability testing, load testing, uh, 
functionality test. I mean, just we're testing it every way from Friday, and it makes a huge difference. It makes a huge difference. Now, at the same time, our our uh, our base, our users have gotten used to that better quality. And when something doesn't load within four seconds, they're moving, they're clicking away. When something's not intuitively easy enough to use, they're moving away. And so it is, uh, you know, we're a victim of our own success. And and I think expectations are going to keep raising, whether it's an internal app or an external app. Right, people aren't going to put up with crappy software. Yeah, and I think at the end of the day, that's probably a good thing for our industry because for some reason we got into this mindset that it was okay to experiment on people. We could just roll out something, and if they didn't like it, we'd push out some updates and we'll fix it later, kind of thing. And I think we got maybe a little uh, into a mindset where we took people for granted. Well. No, I, I'll tell you something, Mike. I think there's still another, as much as we're testing pre-deployment, the rise of feature flags, right? And I know our audience is familiar with the term feature flags. I think the rise of feature flags, by its very nature, almost experiments with end users, right? Where, you know, we're going to give them black or white, and let's see which one they pick. And then based on that, you know, we'll go to brown and yellow and green and red or what have you. And, um, you know, feature flags is, has become a very, very popular way of testing audience preference. Not necessarily or so obviously quality, but audience preference, right? How, you know, what do people want in this particular feature? And, um, you know, there's no way of doing that without kind of experimenting on your end users. So I, I, I still, I don't think that's going away. Feature flagging being a bad term for essentially A-B testing for people, for those folks listening to this that are not DevOps. Well, it's not bad if you raised a lot of money based upon our, <laughs> Right. I wanted to shift the gear entirely, but I know that you were in the real estate market recently and you're also hiring folks in different towns and cities. And we did an article on uh, Rotterdam and its shift towards digitization and the services it provides. And I'm curious, as the owner of a business, do you start to think it makes a difference in the ability to attract talent to your organization by the quality of the digital lifestyle enabled by the city where you live? Ah. You know, I, I had this conversation just this weekend with folks. We were, I was at dinner Saturday night, and, and believe it or not, this topic, chosen by exciting dinner conversations, this topic came up. I, I can make an argument both ways. Here's the net net of it for me. Let's say you've got this killer crackerjack coder who lived in San Francisco, right? And he was he or she's paying a fortune in a shoebox apartment, but they enjoy living in San Francisco, right? The culture and all the things there are in San Francisco, the richness of that urban landscape, if you will. And now they say, ah, the heck with this. I'm moving to Idaho or Montana or, you know, one of these places that was seemed to be a, a magnet for, for uh, 
a lot of folks fleeing. I think when they first get there, they say, wow, smell that. You know, it's like Green Acres, the fresh air, Times Square. You know, they get out there and they're like, look how big my house is. Look how much land I have. Look at the wide open spaces. Wow, I'm breathing, I'm living. Two, three years later, they went to all four restaurants in town, right? And it's not, that's not the life. Or or they go to, a, they want to go to a meetup, not a Zoom meetup, an in-person, real-life meetup to discuss whatever it is they're into, testing, security, Java coding, JavaScript, whatever. And three people show up, right? Instead of the 50 or 100 they're used to. I think over time, people, you know, the, 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 the what's the word? The, the bloom is off the rose. I, I think the bloom goes off the rose over time with that. And, and there's a reason why people congregate in cities and in, and in places that may be a little more expensive to live in. And, but you have a critical mass of talent, Right. I think I don't know if the choice is between rural countries and cities as much as it is which city you might want to live in and which one provides a better digital experience. So you may go to New York over, say, uh, I don't know, Columbus, Ohio, simply because the digital experience is richer and the services are better. But is that is that enough to negate cultural or lifestyle? Probably not. I think it's table stakes. It's a factor. It's something you consider. Yeah, but, let, but let's be realistic. What what decent city, let's say in the U.S., doesn't have digital? And, and granted, I live in South Florida. I you know, but the cities I go to. The digital experience doesn't seem to suck or be perceptibly better or worse than other metropolitan areas. I think that the services that the local government provides through a digital service make a difference to people. I think, you know, if you've got to go line up for every silly little thing in your town, it becomes a nuisance after a while. So I think that there are going to be people who will decide that they want to live in a specific area because the local government, as in the case of Rotterdam, is making an effort to make their lives easier through digital services and not continuing to use a lot of legacy processes that result in people lining up at the DMV or whatever else it might be. I, I, I love it. And I, I will confess, I haven't had to go to the DMV in years and years, even when I moved recently. But at the end of the day, is that a pocketbook issue for people? I don't know. It may not get you elected, but if you don't do something about it, it will surely get you tossed out of office. That's my vote on it. Hey, Alan, okay. thanks for being on the show. We're done. All right. Thank you, Mike. Hello all to right. all, everyone at Digital CXO. And thank you all for listening to our show. On the Digital CXO website, you can find complete episodes as well as show notes with links to the stories we discussed today. And you can follow us on your favorite social media platform and subscribe to us on your favorite podcast app. We'll see you all next time.